Welcome back to Blazing Trails. I'm Michael Revo from Salesforce Studios. What will a post-COVID world look like? How will this crisis impact globalization, change our education system, change our world? These are questions Ian Bremmer, the founder of the Eurasia Group, spends a lot of time thinking about. On today's episode, Ian discusses how this pandemic is reshaping our future and what we can expect from global alliances and leaders in the aftermath. Before we jump over to Ian, a quick word about Tableau. With Tableau, you can unlock insights from any data source to make better decisions fast. Whether it's tracking internal sales and marketing or the global economy, Tableau has the dashboards and tools you need to find the insights that matter. Learn more at Tableau or by clicking the link in our show notes. Now, I'll hand it over to our host, Salesforce co-founder and EVP of technology, Parker Harris. Ian, thanks for joining us today. Parker, great to be with you. Awesome. Well, let me just start by, you know, we're in the middle of this public health crisis, economic crisis, the social injustice crisis, and frankly, a leadership crisis. You know, how do you at the Eurasia Group think about recovery as we emerge from each of these crises and try to rebuild a more just, sustainable, and equal world? Well, first of all, we obviously think that the timelines are very different. Uh, I mean, a country like China, they had a second quarter, a small amount of growth. Uh, while the Americans and the Europeans were facing the worst quarter in our history. And, you know, that's in part because the pandemic hit China faster uh, earlier, but it also is because they're able with surveillance and with an authoritarian state to ensure massive testing, but also full lockdown and complete compliance. So the supply chain was back up and running in China. Now, that's not something that we could do in the U.S. or in Europe. It's not something we'd want to be able to do in the U.S. or Europe. The good news for the United States is, at least so far, the economic response has been both very strong and bipartisan. We saw that in the early days from Secretary of Treasury Mnuchin, from Speaker of the House Pelosi. We're not seeing that right now as we get closer to the elections, though hopefully in the coming weeks we will. The positive news has been Europe. It's been Chancellor Merkel who, I mean, frankly, if you look at her six months ago before the pandemic hit, you thought she was washed up. She was a lame duck. Uh, Her approval ratings had sunk and everyone was angry because she was the one that let the millions of refugees in. It was very unpopular in Germany and across Europe. Now she's the poster child for getting pandemic right because she didn't cheerlead. She focused on science, on facts. And after getting Germany out of the worst of the first wave, she actually led a process to bail out the poorer countries in Europe transferring wealth. And she got unanimity from 27 countries in Europe at a time when no one's being unanimous about everything. They all agreed that they were gonna spend hundreds of billions of dollars from the wealthy country to the poorer countries so that they'd be able to pull themselves out of the worst economic crisis of our lifetimes. And even if you're skeptical about the future of Europe, it's hard to say no to that. And so, I mean, I think that we can look around the world and we can see even in the teeth of this crisis that there are spots of effective leadership and there are spots, whether you're rich or poor, whether you're big or small, whether you're democratic or you're authoritarian, People are focusing on expertise and science, and it's helping us get through this pandemic. 
Yeah, it's amazing. And, you know, maybe, Ian, we need more female leaders in the world when you, you, know, you speak of Chancellor Merkel and her success. You know, when you look at, I mean, clearly the crisis we have in the United States, unfortunately, sometimes becomes a partisan issue of how to uh, respond to it. When you look at other countries in Europe, are, are there good and bad of how they've dealt with the crisis? Are there other things we can learn? Sure. We learned that responding early is important and not politicizing the crisis is important, right? Um, and I think, I mean, you're right that there are a lot of women leaders. I mean, there aren't a lot of women leaders around the world, but of those that have been successful, New Zealand and Germany, of course, Norway, of course, um, there've been a lot that are women, but there are a bunch that are men too, South Korea, Vietnam, you know, Greece, one of the poorest countries in Europe going through a depression of their own and they've responded incredibly effectively. The thing that you find in common of all of those countries is they recognize that this was such a severe crisis that they couldn't make politics about it. And by the way, countries that were close to elections when the pandemic hit responded less effectively. I mean, it's unfortunate that we are you know, in the midst of this electoral cycle coming up in just a couple of months in November. That definitely made it harder for everyone to work together, share information, and not blame red state versus blue state in the U.S. In most of the countries that were successful, you didn't have that problem. Given that, would you uh, would you advocate not having U.S. elections every four years to have more stability <laughs> in governing? No, I wouldn't advocate that, but I'd like to advocate not having an electoral cycle that lasts for almost two years, costs billions of dollars. I mean, nobody even talks about campaign finance reform anymore. But obviously, when you have to start running almost once you've won, if you're a House representative, it's a serious problem. It makes leading a lot more challenging in our country. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I was uh, in, in preparation for this interview, I was reading on your website, the Eurasia Group, your top risks for 2020. And uh, the second risk that you list, you call it the great decoupling and specifically about U.S. and China separating around uh, technology. And we've seen certainly the issues with Huawei, uh, more recently uh, TikTok. And uh, you said that it's uh, on your site when I was reading it, that you know, it's the most impactful geopolitical development for globalization since the Soviet Union collapsed. And I'm like, wow, in my industry, I see that it's a huge impact, but that's a huge statement. Can you tell us more? Sure, because if you think about What's been behind the optimism that most of us have, you know, in humanity over the past decades, it's been globalization. It's been the idea that goods and services and capital and people and ideas and data move faster and faster across borders. And that has created extraordinary wealth. It's expanded our lifespans. It's led to incredible inventions and discoveries, right? It's one of the reasons why we're going to be able, hopefully, to develop a bunch of vaccines for this disease faster than humanity had ever been able to before. Now, there's no question that people have been left behind by globalization and that the winners have not been distributed equitably and governance has failed in responding to that. But still, that doesn't mean that globalization is broken. That means that governance is broken. This decision both of the Chinese and the Americans to decouple the World Wide Web into two separate systems that we will, our data, our filters, our cloud, our artificial intelligence, our apps, all of these things that are not just in our smartphones, but increasingly anything with a chip in it, 
right? I mean, the internet of things means your smart home. It means your geo-tracing. It means your, your, your biometrics. It means your smart house and your smart city. They're going to be split into two. And one of those will be dominated by Chinese corporations aligned with the state. And another will be largely American corporations operating in the West. That's the biggest break in the trajectory of globalization of our lifetimes. And it doesn't mean that the US and China won't work together anymore. We're still gonna buy a lot of our goods from the Chinese. We're still gonna export energy and export food to them. So it's not the end of globalization, but it is an end of perhaps the most important part of globalization in the 21st century. And that not only means less efficiency, less growth and more risk, but it also means more dehumanization. You know, when, when you think about why it is that we would ever dehumanize our fellow human beings, it's usually because we don't understand them. We don't have physical connection to them. We don't engage with them. When you live right next to them and spend time growing up with them, it's really hard to dehumanize. And what we're now doing on a global scale is saying that people that are connected to the Chinese system will increasingly not have any shared worldview or connection, or even conversations with people connected to those American apps. And I think that's a truly unfortunate thing. I don't blame the Americans for this. I mean, the Chinese were the ones that stopped Facebook and you know Google and Amazon from being able to operate in China. There's plenty of blame to go around here. But the reality that you're asking me about is, I think we've passed the point of no return of breaking apart these two tech systems. And if Biden's elected in November, it doesn't matter, right? This is Biden or Trump. I mean, they, they all agree on this. Uh, so it's a serious change in trajectory for the world. Yeah, and I, and I think we're already seeing uh, countries having to choose. You know, you look at France, uh, you know, and needing PPE, you know, working with China, because, you know, we all need to work together in the midst of this health crisis. But that health crisis and the help for PPE in France, as I understand it, is also agreeing to deploy more Chinese technology, specifically Huawei networking equipment. And it's going to be interesting to see how it happens across the globe that countries have to choose and how will we react, uh, how will the United States react, and what will our relationship be when people choose sides. It's really unfortunate. I think you're going to see that the advanced industrial democracies, probably almost all of them, will be aligned very strongly with the United States, in part because they're just not going to trust that Huawei is going to be able to make good on their contracts and their promises when the world's largest economy is working hard to squeeze them and shut them down and stop them from having semiconductors from Taiwanese companies and things like that, in part because Ultimately, even if these governments and their leaders, many of them don't like Trump, they really are more aligned in terms of system and values and governance with the United States than they are with the Chinese. I, I think the question will be, what about all of the other countries? Uh, and by the way, the UK has already made this shift. The Australians, the Japanese, New Zealand, Canada, right, uh, is moving in that direction quickly. But what about Brazil? Right, where Bolsonaro, I mean, by far Brazil's most important trade partner, not the US, it's China. Even though he likes Trump, is he really going to cut off all that cash? What about all the countries in the world that are getting huge amounts of money from Belt and Road 
through China. And there isn't an American Marshall Plan for them these days. We're not focusing on international aid and investment. We're focusing on the United States. Are they going to make decisions? Will China become the de facto data guarantor for a billion Africans? I mean, 80% of all external debt that is held from sub-Saharan Africa is held by the Chinese, 80%. I was in Ethiopia right before the lockdowns, and over 100 million people in Ethiopia, you couldn't find a building with a crane on it that wasn't Chinese. They're building the country. So I think as we look forward 10, 20 years, that split increasingly looks like rich world versus not so rich world. And that's going to have very interesting implications for how humanity fights. Yeah, that's a, a frightening future. And, you know, when I look at it from a technology angle, um, you know, as CTO at Salesforce, you know, we started a company based on the Internet and based on the power of the fact that the Internet is global and that, you know, multinational corporations can use our service and access it anywhere in the world. But some of these trends that you're talking about are, are working against that. We see that in our business where, you know, when you think about data, you know, there's much more and more data sovereignty where countries, China, the United States, uh, you know, everyone wants to say, I'm going to keep the data in my country. It's going to be sovereign because data has value. And yet the value of that data is collaboration around that data, regardless of where you are and leveraging the internet for that. And they're at odds. You know, do you see that getting worse over time? And, you know, what are ways that we might think of solving that direction? It is clearly right now getting worse. There is not, honestly speaking, an area of the U.S.-China relationship right now that is not getting worse. South China Sea, Taiwan, Hong Kong, Uyghurs, you know, technology, intellectual property, uh, trade, uh, I mean, you name it. Uh, cultural exchange, blame for the original cover-up of the coronavirus. I can keep going, right? Having said that, the fact that the United States and China are actively decoupling on technology does not mean that there is no area of tech that we can cooperate. For example, it's very clear that neither of our countries want the existence of lethal autonomous drones. It would be really good for the Americans and Chinese to coordinate on that. It should be obvious that we both want to move towards a vaccine faster and have transparency of data and be able to distribute it more effectively around the world so we can all start getting back to our normal, normal lives again. Meanwhile, the US says we're leaving the World Health Organization and the Chinese are not providing full transparency with the WHO. So I think the way you fix this is by complexifying. It's by saying, yes, there are areas of artificial intelligence and data where we don't trust the Chinese. It matters to national security, and we need to keep them out, and we're going to fight them. But there are other areas where we really need to work with them around biotech, for example, and we need to share information, or otherwise, not only might we come to blows, but frankly, it's going to hurt both of us. I mean, the good news about U.S.-China unlike the United States and the former Soviet Union, because people love the Cold War you know, sort of analogy, is that we do still need each other a lot. Even in the middle of all of this fighting and name calling, the fact is that we want to buy inexpensive goods from China, even including PPE, and it would be hard for us to suddenly shift our supply chain out. And by the way, the NBA still wants 
their future to include Chinese fans and Chinese basketball players. And we want our universities and our colleges, especially once you get below the top tier, we want Chinese students to pay full freight tuition or they're going to go bankrupt, a lot of them. And so I think the vested interests, both in our country and in China, are sufficiently deep and strong in where we do have codependence, that the relationship is not going to break. This is not a cold war. What it really is, is a failed marriage, but we have kids and we're cohabitating. And that may be difficult emotionally, but for the sake of the kids, right, you're not going to throw things at each other. I kind of think that's where we are between the U.S. and China right now. Yeah. Let me shift the conversation. You know, Salesforce has been greatly influenced by Klaus Schwab and uh, the World Economic Forum. And one of the phrases we often use is the business of business is making the world a better place. That multinational corporations like Salesforce should lean in and not just build businesses, but do good in the world. You know, one of the risks you talk about is that maybe multinational corporations aren't able to do that or aren't able to step in. And, you know, could you explain a little bit more what you meant by that? Well, first of all, there definitely are CEOs and corporations that can do that and should do that. But I think we have to be honest with ourselves. I mean, at a time when we're seeing massive layoffs, when we're seeing a lot of companies that aren't even going to be around in two years, never mind in 10. And we all know that CEOs are incredibly well compensated. Many would say far too well compensated, but they are some of the hardest working, most pressured people in the world. And when they're facing this kind of crisis, the idea that they're going to get away from the day-to-day to to figure out the social contract for humanity, there is no way, right? I mean, the next 12, 18, 24, even 36 months for most CEOs in the Fortune 500 are going to be to make sure they have going businesses. And I just think we have to be honest about that. But when I look at the tech companies, when I look at Salesforce, when I look at Google, when I look at Microsoft, I mean, here I see the companies that are going to be doing the best, that are truly, you know, accelerating not only the disruption of, you know, new technologies, but also the opportunity from new technologies. They are the ones that are going to have to do a lot more. And it's kind of funny on this issue of the business of business and governance. I was talking just yesterday with my good friend, Antonio Gutierrez, the Secretary General. And as we're thinking about, um, you know, UNGA, the General Assembly, the virtual General Assembly coming up in the next month, one thing he thinks is critical is inclusive multilateralism. The idea that your stakeholders for international architecture and even treaties right now are all governments. Formally, they're all governments. And I think we both recognize that needs to change. That going forward, if you sign a treaty, you know, you're going to want to have multinational corporations be a part of that because governments are becoming weaker and they're becoming less capable of fulfilling a lot of the obligations that humanity is going to require of them. And I don't think it can be just about a few well-meaning techno-optimists and techno-utopians, I think you're going to have, if you want to integrate them, you have to do it formally. It has to be within an architecture of rule of law. It can't just be charitable donation because the trickle down from charitable donation over the last 40 years has not been functional in most of the world. Yeah, well, I guess I'll I'll fight back on one point you made. You know, I I do think corporations can do more. You know, in our Q1 of this year, 
we leaned them hard. Uh, we became a mini logistics company getting PPE from China and getting it to places in need like New York City, uh, out in California and San Francisco. And, you know, I, I do think we all can do more, but to your point, you know, we probably need to have the energy and the force of, you know, contracts, agreements, where we're saying we will do this together. And, you know, and at Salesforce, we lead by values, you know, trust, customer success, innovation, equality. Those are our top values. And, you know, I think the more corporations lead with values, but also lean in and work together multinationally to drive change. I think it's so important. Uh, and that we work with the governments as well. You know, the, these multinationals coming together aren't going to become the new government. Harper, I completely agree with you. And I'm not saying Salesforce can't and hasn't done that at all. I wouldn't be on this call if that was the case. But I don't think you can say the same thing about the CEO of an airline in the United States right now or a hotel company right now or Disney right now. I don't think you can say the same thing about the CEO of Deutsche Bank right now. And those are big companies. So all I'm saying is, you know, when we look at the kind of disruption that has been and is going to be caused by this pandemic, there are a lot of Fortune 500 companies out there that aren't going to make it. And I just think we have to understand what that landscape is going to look like and also just how critical we're still going to be relying on governments for the next two years for an enormous amount of aid an enormous amount of bailout and support or, or the country's going to suffer because you and I both know that overwhelmingly the hardship is being borne on the back of the people that can least afford it, the people that aren't in the knowledge economy, the people that can't socially distance, and the countries uh, for whom that's true as well. Yeah, absolutely. Let's shift the conversation and talk a little bit about education. You know, we launched uh, in the middle of the pandemic an offering called work.com initially focused on businesses and how do we help businesses get back to work and, and become productive again. On this past Tuesday, we announced work.com for schools, for education, and uh, you know, indicating our commitment to help school districts uh, embrace a new era of digital learning, you know, because education needs to shift too, especially in the middle of this pandemic. A lot of innovation going on there, but the question for you is, why is getting kids uh, back to school, not just kids, but college students as well, either in person or online, why is that essential as a country and a society? Well, one of the reasons why we have such incredible anger in the U.S. right now, one of the reasons we got Trump and why we got Bernie Sanders and so much anti-establishment sentiment is because so many people feel like the government has not taken care of them. The American dream does not apply to them and they do not have the skills to retool for an economy that's changing so fast. Now, we cannot afford to leave another generation behind. And if you say that education is gonna break for a year or more of many of these kids, and we know who it's gonna break for. It's gonna break for the ones whose parents can't get them the tutors, can't have alternate arrangements for them, the ones who have no choice but to go in and deal with whatever the local school teachers unions and school bureaucracy brings to them, we cannot fail those people because the fact is that the speed up in displacing labor is not just coming from free trade. It's coming from all of the innovations that are incumbent on us to be even faster right now so we can get through this pandemic. Those people will fail if we can't get education working for them as our first priority. It has to be 
the biggest thing. We cannot allow our frontline education workers to not have the ability to teach and teach safely the students that are there under their remit. Yeah, completely agree. You know, earlier in the conversation, you were talking about, you know, globalization and international students, the need that especially uh, higher education needs of the full paid, full tuition students uh, for the economic model of higher ed. And, you know, do you think that through this pandemic, there's going to be radical changes in the educational system in the next decade, two decades, because of the nature of the dependency, the economic model is not really sustainable necessarily. It's, it's a tough economic model. And I think during this pandemic, a lot of people are looking at hybrid learning, online learning, you know, is the four-year degree still valid? Um, there are some educational systems that are innovating, but you know, I wonder, is there an opportunity for a lot more innovation in that space to educate all of these students? I mean, at the highest elite level, probably not as much change because the guild of going through Harvard and the incredible network that you have, the door openers that you have access to, which proves so much more, so much greater importance in a country as segmented and polarized as the United States than just having the basic content and skill set. I don't think that goes away. They will fight as hard as they can to ensure that that persists. Their alumni network, they've got massive endowments. But once you get below that top 1%, where it no longer applies, and you couple that with the fact that people need lifetime training, where the content actually really changes over time, yeah, you're going to completely hybridize that. People are going to be getting much more training through their workplaces. Gig economy is going to require much more modulization of the way that people actually teach. And by the way, that's going to be an enormous opportunity for all of these young people that are coming up and are highly literate in urban areas all over the world, not just in the advanced industrial economies. That's a big reason to bet on sub-Saharan Africa. It's a big reason to bet on South and Southeast Asia, on Latin America, because that human capital is going to be unleashed by breaking the guilds for the non-1%. I think the 1% is going to stay very, very strong and calcified, but the rest is going to break down. Yeah, completely agree. And that's actually why Salesforce has gotten into the education market also with an offering we call Trailhead to try to help with re-education, to help people learn our tools selfishly because we need more experts in the world to go implement our services. But also, you know, for example, veterans coming back to the United States needing to re-enter the job market, underprivileged students, uh, how do they get into the job market? So I agree, uh, we need everyone to lean in hard on education. We need transparency and we need like adult organizations that are coming in and doing this right. Yeah, okay. Final question, uh, you know, in the green room before um, you were mentioning that uh, the US just announced normalization of relations between Israel and the United Arab Emirates. And that that was an indication of a move of the U.S. away from the region and the region moving more towards Asia. Can you explain what you meant by that? Yeah. I mean, if you think about the last decades, the United States was seen not only as the promoter, the architect of global trade, but also the sheriff, the global sheriff, and the promoter of global values. We see that the Americans are turning away from that. And one reason for that is because we're the largest energy producer now in the world, the energy revolution in the U.S. Another is the failed wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. That was Obama's idea of the pivot to Asia. 
But a pivot to Asia is a pivot away from the Middle East. And frankly, that's been continuity between Obama and Trump. And I think that if Biden were elected, there'd be continuity with Biden too. So the turning it on its head, you asked me all about this decoupling with China. I don't think the United States is going to be promoting all of this. We make the Middle East safe for democracy and we exploit their resources. Rather, they have to do it themselves. And the decision of the UAE, which not only massively diversifying away from energy, trying to be a 21st century economy, they're also trying to be a 21st century political power. And that's why this morning they decided that they were going to open diplomatic relations with Israel, something that would have been inconceivable to the foreign policy establishment five or 10 years ago. I bet you in the next six months, you're going to see a number of other Gulf states join them. And it's going to change the way we think about geopolitics in the region. Well, fascinating. Well, we look forward to seeing the future and uh, appreciate your lens on the future. Ian, thanks so much for joining. I really appreciate sharing your experiences, your knowledge. Thanks for joining us today. That was Parker Harris with Ian Bremmer, the founder of the Eurasia Group, speaking about how the pandemic is reshaping geopolitics. For insights into this topic and others, head over to salesforce.com for resources to help guide you through today's changing economic and social environments. I'm Michael Rebo with Salesforce Studios. Thank you for joining us today.